so you're going to get overlapping teachings this morning. We're going to finish, in part, what we started last week, and that is talking about those seven points of authority, the authority of Jesus that John so clearly portrays in John 18 and 19. Remarkable that even through the midst of the trials and, and the arrest and the, the crucifixion itself that we still see Jesus in charge. We still see him as one of great authority. So we're going we're gonna to finish that, but before we do, there's something else I want to talk about, and then we'll finish that, and then we're going to come back to the, thing, the other thing that I want to talk about, and it doesn't matter if that makes sense to you. It just needs to make sense to me. So John chapter 19, verse 23. We'll pick it up right there. John 19, 23. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier and the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. And this was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. Holy Spirit of the living God, we pause and as we often do, we ask you to teach us. Lord, we can listen to a, a man or a woman speak. We can learn things from each other, but it, it is you we need. You are the rabbi. You are the teacher. And you're the one who brings to our hearts and to our minds all the things that we need. Lord, we're a, a room full of people this morning. Everyone is in a different place. Everyone facing different challenges and struggles and joys and, and, and hopes. And, and we're all drawn together because of you, them, and give every one of us the ability spiritually to hear you. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I've wondered many, many times over the years how anyone can be callous to the cross. And I'm not talking about religion nor a theology. I wonder how someone could actually look. How, how anyone, for example, could have gone and watched that movie, The Passion, back when it came out, and be unmoved. Yeah. See the crucifixion and the brutality, and just simply on a physical, emotional level, not walk out of there going, man, man, that was awful. Truly the hardest movie I think I've ever watched. We have a copy on Blu-ray, and I can't bring myself to watch it again. But I don't know, I don't get it how, how someone, uh, uh, truly, the Bible says that the cross is foolishness to those who don't believe. Okay, I understand that. They, they don't get the, the reason behind it, the, the true weight of it, but, but, but to be callous to it, I don't understand that. I, I know that, that to Jews, the <clears throat> Bible says it's a stumbling block. That's, it's offensive. I understand that. And to Gentiles, it's foolishness because especially when he's talking about, thinking about Greeks, that's 1 Corinthians where Paul says that, chapter 1, he says to the Gentiles, it's foolishness. Well, I understand because in the Greek world, everything is reasonable and logic and worked out and to, and to watch this, this God who would die, it, it's foolish. I get all that. I still don't understand how someone could stand at the foot of Calvary and be callous. And yet that's exactly what we just read group of soldiers gathered there in oblivious greed, in peripheral insensitivity to what is happening on Calvary's cross, and all four gospel writers tell us about this. 
Now, every single verse of Scripture is important. If it's in the Bible, it matters. But when it's in the Bible two, three, four times, when it's repeated in all four of the major retellings of Jesus' ministry, there's something significant there. There's something so important. Matthew 27, 35, when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. So Matthew tells us, Mark, and they crucified him, Mark 15, 24, and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. And then Luke, Luke is striking because in Luke 23, 34, Jesus has just said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing, and they cast lots and divided up his garments among themselves. Truly, they didn't know what they were doing. And then what we just read in John. In fact, John takes it even further, gives even more detail. So if you're a Bible student, you ask, why? Why? It's one of the best questions you can take into your Bible study. When you open up the Bible, don't be afraid to ask why. It's not an offensive question to God. It's not a question of doubt. It's a question of, I want to know. Why is this here four times, Lord? Why is this discussed? I understand that it happened historically. Okay, but what's the point? Well, let's talk about that for a second. A couple things you need to know. The Jewish man's typical daily attire consisted of five things. Talking about a Jewish man in the first century living in Judea or perhaps the Galilee in Israel, five basics that made up the wardrobe of a first century Jew. It would be a turban, there would then be uh, sandals, an inner robe. And by the way, the inner robe was very thin, cotton or linen, very breathable, long sleeve, and went all the way down to the feet. Hey, if you live in the Middle East under that hot, incredibly impending sun throughout the summertime and, and well into the fall, you need some protection for the skin. This is, this is before sunblock, okay? So the robe was their sunblock, that inner robe, and it was thin enough that it was breathable and comfortable, but this was shoulders to feet and long sleeve. Turban, sandals, inner robe, tunic, and then finally, to hold it all together, as more of us are needing to do these days, a sash or a belt. Five pieces. The other thing you need to know is the soldier or centurion detail for crucifixion typically consisted of four men. Four men would transport, in this case, transported Jesus and the other two criminals out to where the crosses would be. In this case, again, it's Golgotha. Nailed them, laying them on the crosses, nailed them to the crosses lying down, and then went about digging post holes, unless the holes were already there from previous crucifixion, which is possible. Then they took those crosses, lifted them up, two soldiers per cross, moving across to all three, lifted them up and dropped them down into the post hole with a jarring jolt to the body. The whole thing was designed to be absolutely as cruel a punishment as possible. And then those four soldiers, after getting the three in the holes and up and crucified and up off the ground, by the way, they're up off the ground because according to pagan mythology, you couldn't murder or execute someone on the ground, the pagans thought, because it would defile the ground. So they would lift them up. Jesus says, if I am lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. And that's the truth of the lifting up. But there they are on the crosses, and now you've got these four soldiers with nothing else to do. They've done their job. They have to keep watch. 
Make sure no insurrectionist shows up to try and release one of the crucified or, or, or cause a disturbance. So they stayed there. They kept a watch on things. But usually by the time the person was up and crucified, it was mourning, and I'm talking sorrow, and those around were just focused on their loss and, and the pain of it. And so the soldiers didn't have to do anything else but just gamble. And typically they did. The garments of the crucified were considered a soldier's gratuity. You know, the waiter or the waitress in the restaurant, they get their tip. This is the soldier's tip, the belongings of the crucified. And so the fourth would get the sash, but the fifth article was special. And it's not until John writes his gospel that we realize how special it truly is. The fifth article is the tunic. The tunic was seamless, verse 23, woven in one piece, and that right there describes something handcrafted. So this is a, a very special article of clothing in the Greek, and you need to remember this just for a moment. The Greek word for tunic is chiton, and it literally describes a sleeveless woolen garment. It was a wool that was, was sewn together and stitched in a way that it could be very breathable and, and cool. It would be on the outside of that linen robe underneath. Underwear was not a thing, by the way. The, the linen robe, was that was the underwear. The underwear came around later. We're not going to get into that this morning. But the tunic sat on the outside. It would be down about knee length, and it would be without sleeves, and that was the outer garment over the robe. Now, if you were a slave, if you were poor, you probably didn't have a tunic at all. You just had the robe and maybe a sash to wrap around it, maybe the tunic and, and sandals. In the Hebrew, so the, the Greek for tunic is chiton. The Hebrew for tunic is ketonet. Now, I tell you that because it's, it's an equivalent word. You've got the two languages, but it's the same. It Both describe this, this tunic that I just described to you, the chiton in Greek, the ketonet in Hebrew. Why is that important? Because when we go back to the first time tunic is written, the ketonet in the Scripture, we come to Genesis 3.21, which tells us the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. These were animal skin tunics. That's interesting to me because for God to make those animal skins means that would be the first sacrifice in the Bible, an animal sacrifice so that God could then take the skins of those animals and use them as clothing for Adam and Eve as he drove them out of the garden. The father caring for... Then we see it again in another interesting story that I believe connects powerfully, and that's the story of Joseph. And if you know the story, you know that Joseph, when he was 17 years old, his, his father loved him more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a very colored tunic, ketonet. So Joseph now has this tunic, and it's a very special tunic. In fact, we think Joseph's probably had long sleeves. Uh, unusual because the long sleeve tunic you could keep like manuscripts or, or, or writing utensils. It, it was a sign of authority, and, and Israel, Jacob, was giving to Joseph authority even over his brothers, which his brothers did not like. In fact, they hated it so much that down in Genesis chapter 37, verse 23, it came about when Joseph reached his brothers, they stripped Joseph of his tunic, his ketonet, 
the very colored tunic that was on him. And down in verse 31, it says, they took Joseph's tunic, slaughtered a male goat, dipped the tunic in the blood, brought the very colored tunic and, and took it to their father and said, we found this. Please examine it to see whether it is your son's tunic or not. And if you know the story, you know that Israel thought Joseph was dead and mourned for him and, and really didn't recover until he would see Joseph again many, many years later. Another fascinating story of a tunic dipped in blood, a tunic related to sacrifice, a tunic to one who is betrayed. Now we move forward, and it's interesting, these are shadowy representations of the coming Messiah. Need you remember that everything in the Bible is pointing to Jesus. Everything in the Hebrew Scriptures is there to get us on the right track to see Jesus and be ready for him when he came the first time and for us to understand looking back what this all means. It is all about Jesus Christ. And interestingly, Exodus 28, verse 4, tells us that these are the garments which they shall make, and it's for the high priest, a breastpiece and an ephod and a robe and a tunic of checkered work a turban and a sash, they shall make the holy garments for Aaron your brother and his sons that he may minister as priest to me. They say clothing makes the man. At my point in life, you want the clothing to hide the man, really, it's just what you want it to do. But in the case of Jesus here, the seamless woven tunic was highly unusual. Again, if you were... Well off, sure, you would have the tunic, but if you were a poor person, if you didn't have a lot to spend money on, you wouldn't be spending it on a tunic. We know that Jesus said the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. People take that verse and they say Jesus was a homeless man. Okay, you can make some parallel there. It may be a bit of a stretch to say he was a, a homeless man, but it is true that once his public ministry began, he was an itinerant rabbi, he was a traveling teacher, and by his own admission, he didn't own a home. He didn't own somewhere to go back to. If he went back to anywhere, it'd be Peter's mother-in-law's house there in Capernaum. That's kind of a home base, but he stayed out with the apostles, sleeping out under the stars, out on the Mount of Olives. We've talked about all this through the gospel. So Jesus was not held to home ownership. Why would he have a tunic? And again, this is unusual. This traveling teacher was not in it for the money. If he had the money, he'd have the tunic, but it would not be usual for someone like Jesus, such as he was in the position that he chose, to have a tunic. Luke chapter 8, verse 1 tells us he began going from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. The 12 were with him, and some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses, Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, which is fascinating, Susanna, I mean, these are, these are people from all walks of life. Do you realize that? People who were attracted to Jesus were well off, and impoverished, they just heard Jesus and there was something about him that their hearts wanted. And it says that many others were contributing to their support out of their private means. So the way Jesus ran his ministry is he didn't ask for money, he didn't preach for money, and he didn't work a job on the side. When he started ministry, that's all he did, and people supported him. And there were a group of women, wealthy women, who supported him. 
Jesus had so little, he even had to pay taxes with a tilapia. Right? He sent Peter down to the water, Matthew 27, or, or Matthew 17, 27, sent Peter down to the water and said, look, you're going to have to pull the shekel out of the fish's mouth and go pay the two drachma tax. And Peter did it, opens the mouth, there's the shekel. I have fished in Israel, no, I haven't, but I've wanted to fish in Israel several times just to see. Jesus had nothing. My point to all this is to say that the tunic itself, seamlessly woven, a handcrafted article like this would have been highly valuable, probably a gift to Jesus from a devoted follower, and perhaps the most precious possession that Jesus had in his entire life. And now it's being gambled for. Why is this told not once but four times? First off, because of a prophetic authentication. A prophetic authentication. If you listen back to Psalm 22, what we've called, the Bible calls the Psalm of the Cross because it's all about, it's a prophecy of the cross. It reads like a history of the cross. And in Psalm twenty-two sixteen, it says, dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. And my friends, that is unbelievable. That is stunningly specific. And if that's all you got to say. There is no other religious work, as we've talked about many times, that prophetically authenticates itself. The Bible does. Over 300 prophecies of Jesus' first coming, and every one of them he fulfilled in ways that he could not possibly have foreseen himself, unless he be God. Soldiers gambling for his clothes, casting lots for his clothes at his feet, and it's exactly what happened at the crucifixion. And again, it's one of over 300 prophecies of Jesus' first coming. After his resurrection, Jesus would come back and say, Luke 24, 44, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things which are written about me in the law of Moses, that's Torah, and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That is to say if it's in the Hebrew scripture and it hadn't already happened, it must happen. It will happen. So don't, don't get into all kinds of arguments about the historicity of the scriptures or, or, or you know, the archaeology. By the way, both of those support the Bible. But just go right to prophecy. Just go right to prophecy. Take them to Psalm 22 and then take them to John 19 and you say, you tell me, what other book does this? I, I heard someone talking about this the other day. I don't remember where I heard this, but some of you may have seen that, that movie, um, The Book of Eli, came out several years ago, kind of a dystopian movie, and, and Eli was this guy, and he had a book, and through the whole movie, he's protecting the book. And then at the very end, you realize, you kind of think throughout, it's probably a Bible, and it is. It's a Bible. And at the very end, sorry if I ruined that for you who are going to cue it up tonight <laughs> on Netflix, but it's a Bible. And at the very end, the, the disappointing thing is he puts it on a bookshelf with all the other holy books, the Quran and others. It doesn't belong there. It doesn't belong there. It belongs on a shelf by itself high above any book ever written by man because this one's written by the Holy Spirit and it is prophetically authenticated. So that's part of why all four of the gospel writers come to this and they say, oh, and by the way, the soul lots. Prophetic authentication. Secondly, 
And this is compelling. This is a priestly announcement. John takes it a step further than the other gospel writers specifically talking about the tunic itself, talking about the gambling procedure, and that they divided up the clothes, but then there's this tunic. And, and again, doing the math, you got four soldiers, you got five articles of clothing, four of them divided up, they cast lots for, now they come to number five. What are they going to do? Tear it up? Rip it to shreds and each, each take a fourth? Well, friends, a fourth of a tunic is really not a whole lot of good. So they're like, well, let's, let's, let's gamble for this one and see who wins. The tunic. And unwittingly, they're involved in a priestly announcement. Just a few hours before this happened, in Jesus' trial before the Sanhedrin, you may recall that Caiaphas, the acting high priest set up by Rome, in a showy rage of indignation, he tore his robes. Remember that? Let me read it to you. Matthew 26, 63, Jesus kept silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Adjure, by the way, is a good religious word that you might use if you're the high priest. I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, literally, you said it. You said it. Nevertheless, and then he quotes from Daniel. He says, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And everyone in the room knew he just called himself Messiah. And so the high priest, Matthew 26, 65, tore his robes and said he has blasphemed. What further need have we of witnesses? Oh, wow. Caiaphas, you're so emotional, so impressive that you would tear your robes. The word for robes there is the same word John uses. It's chiton. It's among his brothers on whose head the anointing oil has been poured and over and who has been consecrated to wear the garments shall not uncover his head nor tear his clothes. It was a violation of Torah law for the high priest to tear his robe. And you know what's really interesting is that law was in effect through the entire life of the high priest, and it only ceased to be in effect when he died. When the high priest died, they shredded his garments. They ripped the tunic. They tore the robe, and they tore it into strips, and then those strips would be uh, repurposed in the temple as wicks for the lampstand. Only when he died. That night, as Caiaphas tears his clothes, rips his tunic, the office of the old covenant was nullified. You could say declared irrelevant in that moment because you don't tear the robes of the high priest, but in tearing the robes, he's saying, my office is over. And in essence, the high priesthood is completely done. In fact, what else happened at the crucifixion? Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us the temple veil was ripped from top to bottom. You know what that means? You don't need a priest to get in anymore. You just walk right into the Holy of Holies. There is no more separation. That priestly barrier is gone. But listen, the chiton of Jesus was not torn. They didn't tear it apart. They didn't rip it up for the material. They gambled to keep it one piece. In the same way, the Hebrew pastor, Hebrews 7.23 says, the priests on the one hand existed in greater numbers because they are prevented by death from continuing. 
But Jesus, on the other hand, he continues forever. He holds his priesthood permanently. His robe was not torn. He becomes now the high priest. The old covenant is done. It's over. And I suggest to you, it was over that night that there would be no legitimate functioning priesthood after that morning, after the crucifixion. That that very night, Caiaphas unwittingly gave up his office. The old covenant was done. The new covenant is being ushered in. And the robe, the tunic of Jesus was not torn. Hebrews 9.11 says, when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things to come, through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. So there's a, a priestly announcement in this tunic story that we might have missed, but it's right there. And let me just assure you that you no longer need to go through a, piece, a priest, a pastor, or a parson, or another person. You go straight to Jesus. Because the Bible says there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony at the proper time, 1 Timothy chapter 2. So he now, our high priest, he is our intercessor. He is our mediator. We go through no one else. Now, I want to say more about the tunic, but this is the point where we're going to stop with this teaching. We're going to go to another one. And we'll come back to that one in just a minute. But I want to look back and finish off that list of the seven points of authority that we've been walking through in John 18 and 19. Let me remind you what they are. There's commanding authority. There is the priestly authority. There is prophetic authority. There's governing authority. And there's heavenly authority that we see in Jesus at those five different times through John 18 and 19, very obvious, and we've been talking about those last Sunday and Wednesday night, going through each point of authority. And we listed those out last week. Well, there are two left, and I want to look at them real quickly here. The next one is number six in that list, the firstborn authority. Now watch this, verse 25. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother... His mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. John and four ladies. Now we know the names of all four because we can piece them together from all four gospels, but John doesn't give us all four names there. We know that the mother of Jesus, well, that's Mary, right? We know that, that Mary's sister is a woman named Salome. I think it's Luke that tells us her name is Salome, and Matthew tells us that she had two sons, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, which tells us that James and John were first cousins of Jesus. A little holy nepotism going on there. But you can only get all four names, literal names, if you look at all four Gospels, and then you piece it together and go, okay, those are the four ladies who were there at the cross, and we know John was because he's writing as an eyewitness. So the four ladies, John, perhaps Peter was off at a distance watching. I, I think he probably was. But what's interesting to me is John just kind of skips around, dances around the names. He, he doesn't lay them out before us. Why? I mean, if you were writing it, wouldn't you just say, 
that standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother Mary and, and Salome and Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. Just name them, John. Why doesn't he? Well, you know, maybe he was trying to finish up the gospel and he was under a deadline. You know, the publisher was calling, so he had to get it done quick. Every word of Scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit. It is intentional. Even this odd little verse that leaves out some names and puts in some others, what are you saying? Listen, we see the names, just three names, actually, one that's repeated, three names. We see the name Mary, we see the name Clopas, and we see Magdalene. Mary, Clopas, and Magdalene. I, I will tell you, I have never seen this before Friday. Hebrew means rebellion. Rebellion. Clopas means exchange. Magdalene comes from Migdal or Magdala, which is where Mary was from, but Magdalene is named after Migdal Adair. Migdal Adair which translates the tower of the flock. Migdal Adair was a guard tower, a watchtower at Bethlehem. So if you put this together, it's the gospel. Their rebellion in exchange for the tower of the flock. Migdal Adair, the tower of the flock. That is the good shepherd. Born in the sheepfolds of Bethlehem. Their rebellion in exchange for the tower of the flock. The Bible tells us that the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The name of the Lord. The Migdal Adair, tower of the flock. The good shepherd, Jesus Christ. Our rebellion in exchange for Jesus Christ. And I look at that and I think that's exactly what's taking place right here at the moment that John throws these three names out, only chooses to give us the three, that that's what's happening. Their rebellion in exchange for the tower of the flock, for Jesus himself. That's firstborn authority. Jesus Christ, Colossians 1.15 says, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And the critic immediately goes, oh, see, see, firstborn, he was created. No, no, he's God. He is preexistent. He was not created. When Paul says he is the firstborn over all creation, that is not existential, that is positional. He holds firstborn position, like a firstborn son of a Jewish house, which means all authority is given to him by the Father, and it's a procedure, a process by which Jewish people would understand God the Father and God the Son. And you may recall from a recent teaching that, that they said positional authority and Jesus has it. Watch how he uses it. Verse 26. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. After dad died, mom was the firstborn's responsibility to care for, to look after, to provide for. If she didn't have a place to live, she lived with him typically would move right in with firstborn son and his wife and, and be part of now their family. Once the husband is gone and there's no cover, there's no protection, there's no support, 
And I'm talking back in the, in the Jewish culture and heritage and back in the first century, the firstborn had to step up and take care of mom. I'll tell you what, this is totally a side note and I didn't say it first service, but that is something severely lacking in this culture. Severely lacking. Children caring for their parents as their parents get older. Their parents, by the way, who love them and care for them their entire life. So if you happen to be one of them children that I'm talking about, guess what? We're going to live long enough to be a major burden to you. <laughs> but our parents are our responsibility. And especially the firstborn. The firstborn made sure mom was taken care of. You know what happens here? This is just remarkable. This is a very, in fact, I think it's the most tender moment on the cross right here. The most tender thing that happens for all else that's going on. This tender point of authority. This shows us that even in the midst of the most epic moment of history and eternity, as Jesus is dying for the sins of all people who have ever lived, if they would only receive eternity, past, present, or future. And yet we see here that God cares for one. He cares for the one. That Jesus on the cross, would you have had this kind of wherewithal? Nailed to a cross, bleeding out every moment, every breath, horrific pain, trying to survive just a little longer, would you have thought, hey, I need to take care of mom. You might not have. I might not have. Jesus did. My mom's got a funny saying. I'm sure I've told you about it before. She likes to toss out there just every now and then. Anytime a little motherly guilt is, is required in my life, she's going to say this one, and, and we all laugh about it. In fact, I started to say it this morning, and Cheryl was sitting down in the second row, and she mouthed it with me because she's heard it too. When all the world forgets, there is a mother waiting still. But what if the mother's forgotten? What if she's been sidelined? What if she has been disdained? And wait a minute, didn't Jesus do that? Didn't Jesus say, who is my mother? They came to him, Matthew chapter 12, verse 47, and they said to Jesus, behold, your mother and your brothers are outside. They're seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward the disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. He said, For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. You know what? That was not spoken as a repudiation of Mary. It was spoken as a recognition of who his followers were. It was not a rejection of the one. It's a bringing in of the many. And Jesus looks around the room and says, you all are equally valuable to me. You all matter to me. You are all just as important. But he does not disdain his mother in saying that. In fact, the proof is in the, in the behavior. As he's dying on the cross, Jesus is taking care of Mary. And I, I, I pause to tell you that because guess what? That's what he does with you. Have you ever sat in a church service and thought, no one here has any idea what I'm dealing with? 
all these people singing these praise songs, and here I am, and here's the stuff that I've got to deal with, and no one has a clue, and no one's life is as hard as my life. And you know what? I'm not going to dispute that. Maybe on, in that moment, on that day, your life is the hardest one in the entire sanctuary. You ever thought that? And then ever wondered, how can these people worship him and sing songs to him when I'm dealing with this? You know who God's looking at in that moment? You. He cares for the one. He dies for the many. He cares for the one. And that, I think, is why John mentions this story at all on the cross, this story with Mary. He doesn't forget. All the world may forget. He doesn't forget. He cares for the one. This moment also shows us the the incredible personal value of family to the Lord. Family matters to God. Always has always will. Now, I learned something this morning, and you're going to love this. I, I, just, I didn't know this. Learned this after first service. I, I shared that they say that, you know, that old phrase, blood is thicker than water. And typically that is spoken to say blood is thicker than water. That is, those on my side of the family in this DNA strand are actually closer. You may have married in, but you're not really quite up to the stature of the rest of us. You're still a little bit on the outside. You know, it's the whole in-law, outlaw thing. Blood is thicker than water. You know, we totally misuse that phrase. Totally misuse it. You want to know what the exact original phrase was? Check this out. The blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. That's the statement. That's the truth. The blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the fellowship. We are family, my friends. And we may not even know each other that well. We need to get over that because we're going to be together a long time. And if that guy four rows back annoys you, guess who's going to be in the house right next to yours in heaven? We're family. We are family. We have tried, not always successfully. We have attempted oftentimes with difficulty to function that way as a church, not to be an organization, but just to be a family. So when it comes to hiring and and bringing in staff, I I still think it's amazing to me that everyone on our staff right now was a part of the church first. God just raised up from within. So I'm I'm looking for that worship leader that that he just brings up within the family. And if someone comes from outside, if if he chooses to bring someone from outside, that's fine, but they're family and we treat brothers and sisters like brothers and sisters, not like employees. We don't treat one another like fellow churchgoers. Oh, yeah, row three, I I know that guy. No, you are brothers, you are sisters. We're family together, and this is the way God views it and the way we are called to view it. Ephesians 2.19, you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. We're family. We need to treat each other that way. And, yeah, family gets messy. All family is dysfunctional. All family. I know you think that, that you have us all fooled. No, we know your family's a mess. We get it. <laughs> and we get it because our family's a mess. But we're family in Jesus, and he draws us together. Well, verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. He's saying everything that needed to be done has been done. Again, this is, this is the point of Jesus' authority on the cross. Here we are at this point. You can almost hear Jesus 
And I don't want to read too much into this, but you can almost see him ticking off the checklist to make sure he's covered everything when he said, you know, John says, everything had been done. Jesus knew it was over. He knew it was done. Did I tell you that crucifixion normally took three or four days? I mentioned that first service. In fact, the whole process of crucifixion, we have a, a cross or the remnant of a cross and bones that were actually discovered from a first century crucifixion that gives us the only example that we have archaeologically of what it actually looked like. We know that there was scoring in between the two bones of the forearm, not in between the bones of the hand because the nail didn't go through the hand, it went through the wrist. Because to the Roman and the Jew of the first century, the hand and the wrist were all the hand. Besides the fact if you drive a nail through the hand, it will rip out by the body weight over time. And they didn't want that to happen. They wanted that guy up there for a few days, so they went through the wrist. He would be nailed up by his wrist, and there was a seat actually on the back of the cross behind him where if he pushed up, he could actually get onto that seat and have a little bit of respite, be able to breathe a little bit until it slipped back off and be in pain again. And this was designed by the Romans to last three or four days. Jesus was on the cross six hours. And it wasn't because his body couldn't handle it. It's because he did everything he needed to do. And when he was done, Jesus, in final authority, he said, I'm thirsty. <laughs> I'm thirsty. You know what? He was. The humanity of Jesus is still simultaneously in play with the deity of Jesus in this moment. It, it fulfills Scripture. Even something as simple as this, I'm thirsty, fulfills Scripture, fulfills the prophetic word. And of course Jesus was thirsty. He had been beaten. He had been scourged. He was now crucified. And when you have that kind, he is just drying up. Psalm twenty-two, fifteen. 15 my strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaves to my jaws. Couldn't get any, any saliva to speak. I'm thirsty. And so verse 29 tells us a jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop, and they brought it up to his mouth. The sour wine, we think, was Pascha. Pascha was a Roman drink. It, it, was, it was a mixture of, of wine, vinegar, and water that they mixed to a certain degree, and apparently it was a very bracing drink, and they provide it for soldiers and for slaves. For soldiers and slaves. And at any given crucifixion, there would be a jar of Pascha there for the soldiers to drink as they had to wait the long hours of three or four days, keeping watch, you know, or until the other guard came. And so through the day, they could dip into the Pascha, have a drink, have a little, you know, maybe be revived. At least that's what they believed at the time. That's the sour wine that was given to Jesus. But listen, don't confuse it. Don't confuse the sour wine with the wine they tried to give him earlier. Matthew 27, 34, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall. And after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink it. Now, it may have been that Pascha, but they mixed in some gall. Again, part of the brutal crucifixion process was to give gall with wine, which was a narcotic, so that you would kind of slip into kind of a stupor, and you'd still be in horrible pain, but not quite as bad. 
and you'd maybe drift off for a few hours and then wake back up in the horror and they would just keep this going three or four days. So they tried to give this to Jesus as an analgesic, as a painkiller, and he would not take it. Matthew 27, 34, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall and after tasting, he was unwilling to drink. Why? Because Jesus would feel everything on the cross. Part of the process was to drink the wrath of God to the dregs, and he would not do it by the use of painkillers. So now they offer him just the posca, just that sour wine, and he takes that just to get enough moisture in his mouth, enough on his lips. He accepts it, fulfilling more prophecy, Psalm 69, 21. They gave me gall for my food, which he rejected, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. This is all Old Testament stuff. And we're just watching it play out in Jesus on the cross. And he drank just enough to speak one final word. Therefore, when Jesus received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And you Bible students know one word, to tetelestai. Tetelestai, he said. Tetelestai. And that is number seven in our authority list. That's the final authority even the authority to choose when he was done, when he had fulfilled everything. When it was finished, Jesus said, it's finished, and he died of his own volition, of his own choice, the authority and finality of his life. John 10, 17, do you remember that Jesus said this? The Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, final authority. And I have authority to take it up again, this commandment I received from my Father. So on his authority, after just six hours on the cross, Jesus said, to tell us die, and he died. It's an interesting word. We've spoken it a lot around here. It is finished, to tell us die. You know, it was used three ways among the Greek people. It was used for an artist, an artist who perhaps was completing a sculpture, he would finish, he would take a look at the sculpture and say, die, done, finished. It was used by merchants in the marketplace. They actually would have a stamp. Today, if you go to a store and you want to make sure you've purchased something but you still want to do some more shopping, you get the receipt. die was the receipt. They would literally stamp the item with hot wax and a little stamp on it that stamp said, die." It meant paid Done, finished, this has been paid for. It's a final transaction. So you could get that stamped and then you could continue around the marketplace and if someone said, hey, didn't you get that pot? Did you just steal that? No, no, see, to tailest die. It was also used for a servant. Having completed a task or his master's command would go back to the master and say, to tailest die, I'm finished. Jesus is the artist. He is the artist who perfects God's workmanship. Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship. The word is poema. We're his poems. We're his artistry. We're his craftsmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. He is the merchant who paid the full price for our redemption and stamps you and stamps me paid in full. To tell us die. 
1 Peter 1.18, you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ, to telestai. And Jesus is the servant. Perhaps most shocking of all, artist, I can give that to him. Uh, merchant, okay, servant, who fulfilled the master's will, who fulfilled the father's will. Matthew 20, 28, just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus returns to heaven and says to the father, die." The servant has completed the master's, master's task. And you know what? You can't add to die." There's no addendum. The artistry, and the, 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 the purchase or the transaction, the exchange, right, might make it better. Nobody can. Stop trying. If that's you, stop trying. Reject the lie that there's something else that you need to do to add to the cross of Jesus Christ. There's nothing you can do. Nothing that he didn't already do. Stop playing the game and start living the life. I'll tell you what, we would be far more impactful in this world as believers if we just accepted that it was paid in full. If we just walked around the world saying, I'm covered by the blood of Jesus. Why do you believe that? Because it is finished. To us die. It's done in full. Colossians 2.13 says, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Listen, Paul said, having forgiven us of all our transgressions. Not every transgression up to this moment. All our transgressions, past, present, future, we have been forgiven to tell us die. It's finished. That is how awesome the blood of Christ is, how all-powerful it is finished, it is finished, it is finished. Past, present, and future, it is finished. And verse 30 finishes out. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Final authority. Now, so that's, we paused from the one teaching and went to the other one. Now we go back to the first teaching. And I have one final point for you this morning. Aside from the seven points of authority we walked through the last, you know, Sunday and Wednesday and, and then this morning, the dark scene unfolding in the shadow of the cross, it still bothers me. You know, the gambling for gratuity, for the tunic of Jesus, we have an anthem, and this is very difficult. I don't like this, and you may not either, but we've got to see it. We've got to feel it. Les and I were, were talking about this after Wednesday night, and we would gotten halfway through John 19 talking about the crucifixion of Jesus, and Les just came up, and it's, it's weird. Okay, I'll just tell you guys this, not that it matters, but there are times when I'm teaching where it's a blur, you might not know it, but for me, I go home and I go, Cheryl, what did I talk about? <laughs> I have no idea. I know I, I know I moved through the notes and I, and I know I shared, but it's just, it's a weird, I don't know, pastor-teacher thing when you teach every Sunday and Wednesday. Maybe just the Holy Spirit takes over and he doesn't need me, so I just stand there, you know. 
But Wednesday night was one of those where by the time I was finished, I, I stepped back and I'm going, boy, I, did I cover that? Did, Lord, did I say what needed to be said? Are, are, are we good here through verse 22? Should I, do I need to go back? And So I'm kind of in that place and, and Les came up and, and we're talking about the study and, and he was, as always, incredibly encouraging. But he said something that stopped me right there. He said, you've got to feel this. You know, we've got to feel this. And he wasn't talking about getting all emotional about the brutality of the cross. You know, that, that's real easy to do. We can go point by point and talk about all the things that hurt and pain. You'll just look and go, oh, this is so awful. You can watch movies about it like The Passion and just feel so bad. That's not what he was talking about. We have got to feel the weight of what Jesus did, of what really happened in that moment on the cross when he said to Taylor's die, all these things leading up to this point. And yes, even the tunic, we need to understand this. So listen one more time. The soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier, and also the tunic, and the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, let's not tear it in the cross. If all four pieces of clothing were passed out and the fifth was the tunic and they gambled over that, what was Jesus wearing on the cross? First time someone suggested this to me, and I don't remember how old I was, but it bugged me literally for years because I'm a very visual person and I didn't want that picture in my mind. I had seen the paintings, you know, of Jesus on the cross. He's got that loincloth and he's hanging there and, and that's bad enough. But when someone suggested what you all just said, that on the cross Jesus was completely naked, I didn't want to hear that. That's going too far. That, that, that's too much for my sensibilities. But they gambled everything. And as I told you before, there, there was no loincloth. There was no underwear. There was nothing else. That was what they wore. And after, when all four pieces and the tunic are passed out among the soldiers, there's nothing else. Now, now stay with me for a minute on this. Lane's commentary on Mark says men were ordinarily crucified naked. That was the way it was done. It was part of the shame it was intentional on Rome's part to put a guy up on the cross completely naked before the world and brutalized and shameful and humiliated. That was the whole idea. And let him hang there three or four days and let people walk by on the main thoroughfare coming in and out of Jerusalem and see that and go, okay, I will obey Rome. I won't do this. I would never want to do anything that would get me landed up there. And so Lane said, that's the way they did it. Now he did acquiesce. He said, Jewish sensitivities dictated that men ought not to be publicly executed completely naked, and men condemned to stoning were permitted a loincloth according to Mishnah. So if you were executed by Jewish execution, which was stoning, then the Jews, out of a certain respect, would at least allow a loincloth. This was not Jewish execution. This was Roman execution. And Lane clearly states, whether the Romans were considerate of Jewish feelings in the matter of crucifixion is unlikely. And I would add, whether the Jewish leaders were considerate of that is unlikely as well. Take this man down. Shame him in every way possible. Humiliate his attempt to take our power. The very idea of Jesus nude on the cross, it has 
for most of my life been unthinkable to me. That he might have died in that kind of shame and humiliation, and yet doesn't the Bible indicate that? Not only from the story in front of us, but Psalm 69, 19, prophetically, you know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. All my adversaries are before you. Complete dishonor. Hebrews 12, 2, Jesus endured the cross despising the shame. This was shameful in every way, shape, and form. But listen, if Jesus was indeed completely stripped naked on the cross, when he was lifted up, he wasn't wearing the common first century outfit of a Jew. Nor was he wearing the toga of a Roman or the garb of some other nationality. Jesus on the cross was clothed in the true physical apparel of all people. That he, what he wore on the cross was flesh. That Job 121 tells us, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. John 1:14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And let me suggest to you that Jesus, who set aside glory in heaven and came to put on flesh and live among us, was then glorified again because he put on flesh. That that's the point of the glory. Paul says as much, Philippians 2.8, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. His garment was flesh. Just like yours, just like mine, just like every human being who has ever walked the earth, flesh. And when Jesus said, to Talus die, his flesh expired. Like every flesh expires on this planet. But in that moment, the power of death was broken. And we still deal with it, and I hate it. And so do you. We hate it. It's still a reality of life that these physical bodies are mortal and do not last, and we hate it. But when Jesus put on flesh and went straight to the cross, he broke the power of that which we hate the most. Our current physical apparel, these bodies, cannot withstand our mortality, but now because of the cross, Paul writes, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 2, indeed, in this house we groan longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we're in this tent, we groan, being burdened because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up with life. That's what Jesus did on the cross. That's what happened. As he said to Talus die, the mortal was swallowed by the immortal, so that now, if you will trust in Jesus, you will enter into that new clothing. Amen. Listen to me, and I'm almost done, but we, and it doesn't matter that I'm almost done because I might go another hour, but I won't. <laughs> Maybe the clothes really do make the man 
and we wear them right now. If you are in Christ, you are wearing those garments right now. Wearing the garments of grace. Isaiah 61 verse 10 says, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. And listen to me, Isaiah was very clear. He has done it. He clothed me. He wrapped me. I I didn't sew, weave, or stitch together my salvation by a matter of good works. Jesus did that. He provided all the covering I need, both now in this old flesh, he provided what is needed for my flesh to become fresh and new and eternal for my life to be that way. That is awesome. And that's not just future. It's right now. Now, now Sarah came to me a couple of, couple of Sundays ago. You can tell her I was talking about her. And she said, she said, you know what, Rick? I've heard all your teachings on the rapture. And I'm like, as if there were a lot. I've heard your teaching about the millennial kingdom. I've heard you talk about, you know, the new heaven and new earth and new Jerusalem. And I, and I've, I sat through your revelation teaching and I've heard all of that and I love it and it's fascinating to me. But she said, you know what? At this point in my life, I need to know how to live now. And I'm like, well, of course you do. You're in your 20s, right? No offense to you in your 20s, but the older I get, the more I'm looking this way. I'm not looking behind me. I am looking forward to what God has for me, but I get it. Man, when I was in my teens, my 20s, my 30s, even my 40s, a lot is what's happening right now. I need to know, how do I live now? What do I do? Hey, this is great. This is fantastic. Jesus died to clothe me with garments of grace. Wonderful. What does that mean to me for the flesh in regards to its lust? He has provided you today, right now, immediately, garments of grace, which means you wake up in the morning and you put on Jesus. See, I don't leave my house naked. You're welcome. I don't do that. (laughs) I don't even leave my room that way. My kids have no idea. They're not allowed. Door's locked. I'm getting dressed. Stay away for your own sake. I get clothed and then I leave the house. Paul says, put on Christ and make no provision for the flesh, which means wherever I am, he's got me covered. It means I go nowhere. I do nothing without him. On me, in me, alongside me, as we've been talking about. Remember the picture? I'm clothed with Jesus. And that means I can live outwardly what I believe inwardly. I don't have to be embarrassed about being a follower of Jesus. I know what the world thinks. I know what the culture says. I get it. I know the antagonism. Okay, but I also know what's true. And I know how loved I am. And I have been the one, and I'm often the one, that Jesus has his eyes on, and I'm fully aware of that. It's only, it's a divine thing. How can each one of us all think we're the one? Well, let me just assure you, you are the one, and so am I. Covered in Jesus, wherever we are, day in, day out. And by the way, if you're a little uncertain of that and you want to be more certain, Galatians 3.26, all are sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. All of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. 
Now, we often say baptism doesn't save you, and that's true. You are saved by faith in God's grace, period. That's what saves. It's his grace and your reception of it. However, there's a whole lot more to baptism than I think we understand. There's more that's going on there in a spiritual level that we don't see. Well, maybe that's just a metaphor. It, uh, fine. I'm not even going to argue the point. I don't think it's just a metaphor, but if you want to think it's just a metaphor, that's fine. It's still a picture of being clothed with Christ so that wherever you go, you wear him. Let me give you a little more practicality, Sarah. <laughs> Galatians 3.12, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. How does that work? Forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. Anytime someone offends you, anytime someone goes against you, that's what you've got to remember. Forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. Because nine times out of ten, they don't. And even when they're acting maliciously to hurt you, they still don't really know what they're doing or they wouldn't do it. Forgive them. And beyond all these things, Paul says, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. There's your tunic. There's your handcrafted clothing, garments of grace. It's what he's given you, he's given me to wear constantly. And if you are a Christian here this morning, wear your faith on your sleeve. The day's coming when we're gonna be clothed in literal glory. Revelation 19, verse seven, let's rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come. His bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints, garments of grace. Let's stand together. If you're not a believer in Jesus, I don't know how else to say it except to say that whether you realize it or not, you are bare naked before eternity. And Jesus would cover you with his love and his grace, covered by the blood that he poured out at the cross. There is this tremendous, amazing, almost incomprehensible spiritual reality that took place when Jesus died. He died for you. And if that's you this morning and you've never just said, Jesus, you're my Lord, I want you to do it right now. I invite you to. Can't make you, can't force you, but I invite you to do it right now, to bow your head and close your eyes or look up to heaven, whatever you need to do, and say to Jesus, I am a rebellious sinner and I need the exchange of your grace. So Lord, 
I accept you this morning as my Lord and my Savior. Forgive me of my sins. I believe you rose from the dead. I believe I'll rise with you. But Lord, cover me completely with your grace. In Jesus' name.